This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, January 7th, 2021 edition of Invest Talk. And I appreciate you all tuning in for this hour. I'm going to do my best to make it informational and interesting for you and help guide you into making better financial decisions, right? not just investment decisions, but financial decisions overall. So we're going to cover a lot of different topics, but most importantly, the topics that you bring to the table, right? Your calls, those are more the most important thing that drives this show, drives the narrative, drives what we discuss each and every day. So we appreciate your calls and we're excited to get to those as well. Now, Clearly, yesterday was quite the day in American history, and it just goes back to reminding me to mention that everybody should have read The Fourth Turning. I hope everyone has. I know I talked about it a lot kind of uh, when the pandemic hit, but I still think it's very pertinent to today, and I think this entire decade that we have going forward. So uh, it's it's crucial book. Uh, gives a great history lesson, uh, the cycles of history, and where we are, uh, and what comes typically in times like this, crisis periods, and what comes next, which is the spring, which is good time, right? The first turning, which is when things have changed dramatically, and the world is better for it. And uh, I think we're all excited for that time, but we have to live through times like this. So uh, hopefully everyone stays safe out there. And once again, I appreciate you all for turning in, tuning in. And you know the, the puzzle pieces to investing are numerous, right? Uh, there's unlimited data points that go into it. But what's the, big, the biggest question is, what are the most important data points? What are the heaviest weighted data points that go into making good, sound investment decisions? Right? We have a pandemic and the fallout from that and how we're recovering. And we're recovering actually relatively strongly, but in different ways with different sectors doing better than others. And so... We also have the economic changeover here this month and what that ultimate impact will be. And those trends are shaping markets, shaping uh, economies, and will shape, should shape your portfolio overall. So what this all tells you is that you have to be prepared for continuing volatility. You have to know how to protect your assets, but also find the right opportunities. Because there are always opportunities in every single market. Some are exciting, some not so exciting, but I find all opportunities uh, exciting, whether they're cool tech names or boring industrial names or packaged food companies. The opportunity to make money is exciting for me. 
So, I'm Justin Klein, and on this program and podcast today, I'm going to provide you with unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions. So, I'm going to help you develop the strategies that you need to deal with the market that we are working in. So, I'm ready to take your calls right now at 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. That's how you get through and ask your question on today's show. Quick overview of the market. S&P up 55, once again, closing at an all-time high. Uh, the most important story that I'm seeing in the market right now is the breakout in yields. You have the 10-year yield up to 1.07%. And how high does that go? I'm showing that this actually should be closer to 2%, not 1%, based on the economic backdrop. So that's something I'm watching uh, and to see where that ultimately goes because that will have a knock-on effect on markets and asset prices as a whole. So that was, to me, the biggest story is a continued grind higher in yields. Now I'm ready to take your calls this hour. We have an information-packed podcast for you today, so let's get right to our first caller, and we're going to head over to Oakland, and we're going to talk to Steve. He's going to look at KLAC, KLAC, KLA Tencor. This is one of the largest semiconductor equipment manufacturers. Are you looking to buy it, or do you own it? Hi, happy New Year, Justin. I'm looking. I, I currently own it. I've had it for approximately 52 weeks. It's in the semiconductor industry. You said has had a pretty good run up, and I had it. I was looking for a growth stock, and so far I am in it. And I'm not so sure if it's time to let it go. Well, you're probably saying, okay, now I'm at that long-term capital gains rate. Is that what you're thinking of? Exactly. You read my mind. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, uh, I will say I like Haley. KLA, uh, Tencorp, and this is, like I said, uh, one of the largest semiconductor manufacturing companies, and this is uh, kind of, it's kind of the maker of trucks, right? Because I look at the semiconductor industry as the new transportation industry, right? When uh, the world runs on information and transfer of information uh, all over the world, then semiconductors are vital to that. And when spending goes up in that space, then and, and that business is doing well, the economy tends to do well. So and vice versa. Now, this stock has been on a march higher. Fifty-two week low was around what 110 bucks. Now we're at 278 dollars a share. My value here is around 250 dollars. So it's at 278. So it's a little bit overvalued in my book, but and it's a little overbought but not dramatically so. I like the business. I like the company. I just think it's a little rich here. Okay. So, um, you know, do with that what you will. I think it's a great, strong, long-term hold. Uh, I wouldn't just sell it because you fit that 52 week, uh, uh, mark where you have long-term capital gains. I would say if you if you are looking to find, if you think you can find a better opportunity, you have something that you think is drastically undervalued, maybe you're underweight commodities or industrials and you want to reduce your exposure, this might be a good time to reduce that exposure based on the current valuation. But from a long-term perspective, it's a very good business, very profitable, uh, and I really like the space overall. So uh, I guess that's the perspective I would give you and hopefully you can make an informed decision. Thanks for the call, Steve. You're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we made it. 2020 was a tough year, and 2021 has started off not any easier, right? 
And so there are, but there are several reasons for optimism. And through this continuing uncertainty, we should remember that the task of building a strong financial future and individual financial freedom must continue. Can't afford to backslide. So our goal here is to give you information and effective strategies. And we should talk about what is ever is on your mind. Your participation is an important part of the mix. So we're taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART. Your objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART. Let's head over to San Francisco and talk to Emilio's. He's looking at Onioke. OKE is the symbol. You'd own it or are you looking to buy it? I'm looking to buy it, sir, Justin. Okay. Well, uh, we like Onioke. We've owned it for some time. It does yield about 9.2%. Uh, and I, I think this is, to me, one of the most attractive names in the energy space. So they're in the natural gas pipeline and processing uh, business in the Rocky Mountains. And this is a company that even during, even though the stock has fallen 52-week high of $78, and it fell all the way to 12 now it's at 40 and change. Uh, I, I think it's still a fantastic value. I think natural gas is a great place to be for a few reasons. One, the lack of investment in the oil patch is pushing up oil prices now. We're starting to get back to an equilibrium and new pipe, new pipelines, new, uh, new wells are not coming online nearly as fast as they were before the pandemic. And so we're going to get to a, a place where we're not going to have enough supply, and that's going to push prices up. Now, with those shutoff wells, that also means lower natural gas, uh, na- natural gas production, right? It's usually typically a byproduct of fracking. And so uh, that was the fear back then, uh, but you're starting to see that come back online here. Uh, and prices for natural gas are going up. And then secondly, if we are going to transition to green energy and electric cars, guess what? That energy that's put into electric cars is not free. It has to come from somewhere. It has to be produced by something. It is not zero emission. I know I like to call electric cars zero emission. They are not. You still have to produce electricity. And while in China they use a lot of coal, here in the United States, we use a lot of natural gas. So I think the demand for natural gas is going to continue to rise because it is still relatively cheap and because coal is kind of frowned upon. So uh, I am a big fan of the natural gas space and one of the big reasons why we like Oniok. Justin, much appreciate your opinion, man. No problem, Emilius. Thanks for the call. Now, my focus point today concerns the story mortgage rates ended 2020 near record lows, but home buyer demand pulled back sharply. So let's dig into the numbers here a little bit. Now, even though mortgage rates still are hovering right around those record lows, sub 3% on average, buyers, <clears throat> buyers are, are starting to experience that sticker shock, right? Uh, affordability is stretched and inventory remains low. 
So mortgage applications for purchase of a home fell 0.8% in the two weeks ending January 1st compared to the first two weeks of December, right? So talking about the second two weeks of December versus the first two weeks. Now, over the past few months, that purchase volume has typically been 20% higher year over year. Now, the purchase volume is just 3% higher over the same period last year. The average contract for a 30-year mortgage is at about 2.86%, which is actually down from the previous period, from 29 but applications to refinance a home actually fell 6% as well. So uh, the, all the people that needed to refinance or could refinance kind of already have. Not all, but you know, the vast majority of them. So we're, we're, we're pushing down against those, uh, those low rates. And if you look going back a year ago, end of 2019, mortgage rates were a full percentage point higher. So we've kind of exhausted all of the squeeze of lower mortgage rates out into the housing market, right? That's behind us. Now it's okay, what's the direction of mortgage rates? What's the direction of supply within the market? What's the direction of incomes, right? Because those are the three factors that matter when it comes to transacting homes. Right. Can you afford it? And the affordability relies on income and interest rates. And then can you find something you like and that you want? And that goes back to inventory. Now, this is something that I think is going to be a big story in 2021. A will be the mortgage rates. Right? You, I talked about interest rates starting to break out. I think there's a decent, like, a decent chance that the 10-year starts to march towards that 2% level. And typically, mortgage rates follow that. So if mortgage rates start to march up to that 4% level, that's going to really crimp affordability. Now, inventory still remains low. And I think home builders are still going to do relatively well because they're going to take advantage of that. They're, they're going to be the biggest beneficiaries of that to fill that. But I think by the back half of this year, we're going to start to get more in balance, right? Where inventory gets back to that four, five, six months of inventory. We were down there less than less than three months of inventory before. So uh, I, I certainly think this will be a more tepid year for housing, especially if mortgage rates start to creep up with the treasury rate. You listen to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we're heading into a break. Steve Peasy will be here tomorrow, and I'll return next Monday. But the phone lines are open for you right now at 888 chart This is Invest Talk. The start of a new year promises many changes. For investors, the challenge will be how to stay focused on maintaining your assets while navigating market volatility. That's where Steve Peasley and Justin Klein can help. The phone lines are open and waiting for your questions now. 888-99-CHART. Hello, Steve and Justin. It's Eric in Virginia. As a new investor, I want to thank you for your invaluable advice. My investing knowledge is years ahead of where it would be otherwise. I'm looking to buy Volkswagen VWAGY for a long-term hold. My reasons for buying the stock are that they are focused on EVs moving forward, and since they're in Europe, they should see an additional benefit from the U.S. dollar falling. 
I see that it's near a 52-week high now. Should I jump in now or wait for a pullback? Thanks again for the advice. All right, he's looking at Volkswagen, VWAGY, and this is actually a name that's on our uh, our watch list as well. Uh, I like this name, and I would be buying it on uh, a pullback. Uh, we're actually waiting for a pullback for this name, and we expect uh, just a broader pullback in the markets overall uh, in the first quarter. And that's uh, to us, that's uh, our opportunity to uh, kind of pick up these names. And I like them for the exact same reason. They're they're very focused on EVs. They have many models across all the different brands, from Volkswagen to Audi to uh, Bentley, Lamborghini, etc., Porsche, uh, and uh, they're they're very attractive and. I think they have a lead uh, much better than uh, all the other car companies out there, including Tesla. So uh, I think there's they're underappreciated, and it is a name that is on our watch, watch list to purchase as well. 8899 chart, 8992 is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. We have about 20, sorry, 30 minutes left in the show, so get your call in sooner rather than later. Let's touch a little bit on... You know, a, a market where there's some frothiness, right? We know that. We've seen just the valuations on so many names uh, that are some starting to come undone, right? The Zooms of the world, uh, which had uh, just absurd valuations. Uh, Tesla is still, you know, continues to build on its absurd valuation. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting is that many of these companies have had absurd valuations for a while. And some have had huge drops, 80, 90%, and then come roaring back, right? Uh, and it just goes to show you that in the near term, in the short term, what's most important to markets, and especially great story stocks, are is liquidity, right? If liquidity is strong, tends to chase returns, especially if you're giving that money or that money is getting the hands of the retail investor. And you can look at back at a lot of the names that are doing well right now, right? Think of rare earth metals, right? 2011, they were doing very well. They even came out with a, Van Eck came out with a REMX, which is a rare earth metal ETF. It was down 81% from the 2011 high but then gained 63% this year. TAN, the solar ETF, fell 81% from 2010's high. Now, more than tripled over the past year. So the boom and bust cycles correspond with liquidity that's in there out there in the marketplace. And so, understand that. You know, I had a caller last week about uh, Tesla saying, how is Tesla at these valuations? It doesn't make any sense, right? Elon Musk is now... Uh, the, the richest man in the world. It, it doesn't make sense. Right? Well, they, have a, they sell half of 1% of the global car market, whereas Amazon touches almost everybody in the world. You know? And so you just see that interesting dichotomy. And I actually think this is the year. We're 21 a year away, almost 21. March will mark 21 years since the dot-com bubble bursts. And it would not shock me to see something of that magnitude. And the catalyst very well could be these higher interest rates. Remember, growth names are 
a long duration trade. Meaning, if interest rates fall, growth names get higher multiples, right? Their future cash flows, although maybe minuscule today, are expected to be very large in the future. And when you discount that back based on a very low interest rate, you get very high values today. But if you start to get higher interest rates, you start to discount those future cash flows at a, say, double the rate, right? You likely see a lot of multiple contraction, meaning price depreciation. If you look also at the growth to value, I, I, I do this on, my, on the YouTube channel. If you go tune into that, those videos, I, I usually look at the SPYG, the growth side, to the SPYV and look at a ratio. Well, that ratio peaked out of growth outpouring value in September. Well, if you look at the 10-year, when did the 10-year bottom? In August. And it made a higher low, the first higher low in since the pandemic in early September and is grinded higher and higher. And since then, the value trade has continued to gain momentum, meaning growth has been underperforming value. And eventually, I think that's going to hit a crescendo and break, especially if you get the 10-year one and a half, one and three quarters, definitely would throw a big wrench in these multiples of the tech stocks. Now we're heading into a break. On the other side, I will have a new sector spotlight interview. And tomorrow on Invest Talk, the story how best to plan and meet financial goals during unstable times. Steve will get to that story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888 chart. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. It's been another Investor Thursday, and we've all seen the market move up, down, and all around. It's called volatility. 
and you'll have investment and finance questions for Steve and Justin. They welcome your calls now. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Welcome back to Invest Talk. And right now, everyone, I'm going to jump into our Sector Spotlight series. And we're going to be talking to Luke Peters. He is the CEO and founder of New Air. And they sell small appliances, compact appliances online. And with the pandemic and everything, we know that people are spending money in different ways. And we're going to dig into this space a little bit. And I welcome Luke. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on the show. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no no problem. Now, you've operated in this very niche space of selling compact appliances for nearly 20 years now, right? So how have you seen this particular pandemic for the, you know, the year 2020, right? It's over now, but uh, I'm sure you can look back and see how customer demand has changed for these small appliances in home where they're focusing more of their efforts because they're spending more time there, right? Yeah, for sure. It's it's obviously been a like a boomerang year, you know, and and we sell, you know, wine coolers and beverage coolers and portable ice makers. So you can think of those products there they they make your home more enjoyable. And in March, you know, everybody thought the world was coming to an end and we didn't really know what to make of it. But it really, you know, it it affected us in a positive way, not just because of those categories, but also because we're positioned online. So we work with all, sell through all the major online retailers. And because of that, you know, we were very fortunate um, to be where the customers were during the pandemic. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, we're also seeing a lot of uh, inflation heating up, right? Pun intended, uh, across our economy. Now, how have you seen the pandemic impact your supply chains? Because you sell products from a lot of different suppliers, a lot of different brands, uh, and shipping demands, right? You need to get those products to the end consumer. What has kind of righted itself by the end of the year? And what do you see as, as going to have a lasting impact on shipping and supply chains there's a lot to talk about here and kind of before i get in you know you know i love investing as well and you know we're always wondering with all this you know quote unquote money printing will there be inflation on that end and then a lot of the really really bright people are saying there won't be because there's not going to be enough demand but on the product side you know so that's just on an overall and i don't know where that's going to go or not go but on in our category, and just anybody buying from China, there's been a lot of increases. So first of all, all of the freight prices have gone up. In fact, they've gone up 100% year over year. And that adds a lot. So meaning every container that comes over, double the price. And whatever the contents of that are then obviously going to have some additional land to cost uh, tacked onto them. The other thing is that the, dro- the dropping color uh, versus RMB, you know, it's gone down, I think, you know, roughly 10% or so, depending on what the time frame you look at. And uh, suppliers or, you know, the actual factories in China are coming in for price increases. And then, of course, you have tariffs, which brands have had to increase the, the cost of their goods to account for the tariffs so that they can stay profitable. So you put all those things together, and, and definitely you're going to see rising costs of these consumer goods. Now, they don't make up the whole economy. You know, that's just a segment of the economy, but... But that's what you're seeing, and, and um, you know, I, a lot of the feeling is that this change with the dollar and the RMB is going to continue, and if that does, uh, you're just going to see more of that uh, increase having to be passed on. 
Yeah, so it sounds like if the dollar continues to decline like it has basically since uh, the first quarter of this year, then you're going to see the cost of the end products uh, rise as well. But you also talked about tariffs. Now, certainly with the new administration, that'll be interesting to see what type of approach they take with, uh, with potential tariffs. Do they keep them? Do they pull them back? Do they reduce them? Uh, that's certainly yep. a, a little bit up in the air, but the the shipping costs. I think that's uh, that's pretty interesting because the cost of of fuel of energy has gone down, but you're saying the sh- cost of actually shipping uh, has gone up. Do you think that's a shortage of of truckers of supply of, of supply of labor? What do you think is driving that increase in shipping costs? Yeah, I think there's a couple things there. Uh, some of it could just be. Um you know, a little bit of demand shortage that's kind of created by the major players in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's some of that going on. But I think some of it there. I think there's some new environmental regulations with the type of fuel and reduction of sulfur and fuel. I think that might have had some to do with it. And then the other part is that mm-hmm. yeah. there has been a huge demand surge, a massive demand surge from China. So uh, of of products that are needed here in America from China. And that uh, demand surge has, you know, caused maybe a, let's say a shortage of available containers and, and thus the price increasing. So I think you got a bunch of things working together. Now, do you see any of your suppliers onshoring any of that manufacturing with those increasing costs that you just spoke about? A lot of companies are doing it in different categories. It's hard to do it in, in categories that have electronics in them. So there's certain mm-hmm. categories that, you know, say textiles and products that, you know, they don't have chips or electronics or compressors in it. Those are going to be easier to either onshore or move over to somewhere else in in, uh, in Asia, maybe a, a Vietnam or something like that. But other products, you know, these have they have complex supply chains. That, that's what people have to realize. Like if you want to move, say, over to Mexico which is a great opportunity, by the way, you know, move some uh, manufacturing over there. Mexico still may not have the full supply chain for all of your, all the boards you might need and the, and the different electronics and components that are going to go into that refrigeration unit. So it's, it, there's a lot to, to think about. It's not just moving the product. You have to think about the whole supply chain. So the quick answer is there hasn't been a, a lot of onshoring yet. Yeah, it's just uh, the complexity, like you said, of the supply chains in Asia are are unmatched uh, really here in the U.S. And uh, as time goes on, there are more and more components that go into each product, right? They're not as simple as they were 30, 40 years ago. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if they can uh, replicate the supply chains here in the U.S. And maybe is government going to come in and help with that? I think that's something to certainly watch longer term. Now, you produce a lot of content as well to educate the consumer about your very products that you sell. Now, how important was that in 2020 versus prior years? And how do you see your marketing strategy evolving in the future to drive that traffic to your website? Yeah, and this is a fun question. I love marketing. So how it's changed is, um, you know, back in the day, we'll call that back in the day, 10 years ago, SEO or search engine optimization was a a big strategy and, and you would make content on your own site as part of that strategy, and people would come to your site. And content creation is still very, very important, and content's a huge part of a marketing strategy. What's changed, not just in 2020, but the last couple years, is having other people create that content for you. So using social media, using YouTube, using channels like that, 
to do the content creation. So think of, think of your traditional blog, but think of how much better it is if a YouTube personality is talking about you instead of you talking about yourself. And that's what we focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, we love blogging. Blogging's great. But that's us talking about ourselves, and we think we build a lot more trust if we have third parties who believe in the product and they're talking about us, and they have their own audiences that, you know, that really believe in them, and that's really centers around influencer marketing, and that's definitely been an area of focus for us. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Influencer marketing is, it was a niche a few years ago, but I definitely think it's getting more mainstream. There are actually some pretty big public companies, some that we're invested in, that that's their main strategy, are, are getting the word out via these influencers. And at the end of the day, it works because uh, they it, their viewers view it as authentic and uh, in in the marketing world, nothing is better than authentic. So with that said, thank you, Luke Peters. I appreciate you for being on Invest Talk and unpacking this niche industry, but definitely gives you uh, a peek into the manufacturing uh, industry, the, the, the online marketing industry, et cetera, and you gave some great insights. So thank you once again, Luke. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And for everyone out there, you can check out Luke's website, newair.com, N-E-W-A-I-R.com. And they sell some great compact appliances for your home. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Brandon from Northern California again. I'm calling in, and I know you've talked about them both several times, and I've been waiting to get into each one of them. The first one is Costco, and I see it and Tyson Foods both are kind of on a pullback at the time I'm calling. So I'm just kind of checking to see if you think this would be a good time to get in or if they're still too expensive. All right, thanks. Yeah, I don't think that Costco is not, this is not a good time for Costco. Our value on Costco is closer to $300 a share, probably $275 in that range. Uh, and now we're at $367. The biggest issue with Costco is it had a huge rally right from around the $300 mark all the way to uh, near $400 at the end of the November. And now we are, the, 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 the economy is reopening, right? The, the tailwinds that were helping Costco, uh, their online sales were exploding. A lot of people are spending money on their home, and uh, they turned to Costco for those products. And that's just uh, that's waning, right? Um, so while Costco is still a very good company, it, I think you're it's gotten ahead of itself from a valuation perspective and technically it's starting to weaken. It had a big breakdown on decent volume in November. Uh, and we haven't recovered that candle. Uh, so from a technical perspective, it is definitely weakening. And I think this does head down at least to the 200-day moving average. This is around 337. Right now it's at 367. And then would not shock me to get this back to around $300 a share. Around 300 that's when I say, okay, this is starting to get interesting. Again, it's at least near value. Uh, and that's when I would start looking at it. Now, when it comes to Tyson Foods, that is, let's look at the chart there. That's kind of the other way. Uh, it's actually just recently broken above its 200-day moving average and retested it. So I like that. Uh, the Just the commodity sector as a whole, I think uh, prices 
more broadly are uh, going to increase, including for food. Uh, right? We, we need to feed people, and uh, emerging markets are doing better, and the demand for proteins continue to go up. So uh, if I'm picking between the two, especially in this market, uh, I'm definitely picking Tyson Foods. Now, longer term, if you ask me, okay, do I like Tyson over uh, Costco long term? Well, you know, that's kind of a, a, another story. But uh, I think they're somewhat on par, although I would like Costco longer term better. But near term, I really like Tyson over Costco. Thanks for the call. We have about 10 minutes left in the show, so give us a call, 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. Now, let's talk quickly about SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. And there's been a lot of opinions from observers who have questioned their economic viability. And in 2020, about half of IPOs were SPACs. And the issue here that most critics have is there's a central flaw in these SPAC structures. And if you look at the history of the performance of them, they don't do so well. Now, a small subset do really well, but on average, they're subpar. Uh, now, let's go back to what a SPAC is. Well, it's a, basically a blank check company, right? You raise money. It's led by a sponsor. has a board of directors. has a management structure. And typically, those, all those three, the sponsor, board, and management, have worked together in a particular industry before, and they're targeting an acquisition. So typically, IPOs for $10. That's the standard price. Everything's a little bit different, but typically it's $10. And it gives... Investors and the sponsor shares, right? $10. The sponsor receives 20% of post-IPO equity at no cost, right? Those board members, uh, management, et cetera, they're paid something, and the sponsor is raising some of that money, and it's called the promote. And so no money out of their pocket. They're just organizing this whole thing. And... The money that's raised in this IPO is held in a trust and is vested in short-term treasury securities. Now, they must execute some sort of acquisition within two years. Otherwise, the fund's liquidated and given back to the original shareholders. Now, once a transaction is announced that they're going to buy a private company, investors have the option to redeem those shares for that $10 plus interest earned by the trust. So if you don't like the acquisition, you can get your money back, risk-free. Typically, the SPAC must raise additional money to make this acquisition as well, right? Oftentimes, they don't have enough money in that trust. Now, when you study these structures, you will see that those that do not redeem, they're diluted dramatically, typically by a subsequent offering, Right? and by the free shares that are given to the promoter. And if there's been studies of, the last, of 47 SPACs between January 19th and June 2020. And it showed that a $10 investment is now worth only two-thirds the price that typically is paid for it. 
the time of the merger, when they merge with the target company, the SPAC only has $6.67 on average. All that money went to uh, underwriting fees and other expenses and sponsor shares, and a third of the wealth of the actual shareholders were destroyed. So this is just another example of how Wall Street has just uh, been a tool for financial engineering. And often the equity holders are left holding the back, right? The investment banks, the sponsors, they're the ones that are reaping most of the rewards, most of the value out of these. Okay? And like I said, the majority, if you look at it, post-merger, what was it? Here's the, uh, trying to find, oh, here it is. If you look at the SPACs, three, six, and 12-month time frames, and you compare those returns to the average IPO or to the Russell 2000, they typically underperform. The median return was negative. The median return was negative. Meaning that while the average return was around what the S&P and the Russell 2000 were over a 12-month time horizon, only a small number of very strong outperformers made up for the vast majority, which were losers. Meaning they probably didn't do, they didn't do very well. They probably made some bad acquisitions, overpaid for the target company. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own particular version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99 Chart. Hi, guys. Big fan of the show. I was wondering what you guys thought about the sports betting space, specifically the ticker DKNG, DraftKings. Thank you. Well, I like the sports betting space in general, uh, and I like DraftKings as a company. Just the valuation is way, way overpriced. Right now, it's a $40 billion market cap uh, and trading at $49.77. Our value here is in the low teens, low teens. Now, they're still going to lose $1.12 next year. And you know the, the narrative was always, hey, once we get back to uh, a full slate of, of sporting events, they're going to print money. That was really the narrative kind of before the – or early on in the pandemic, right, uh, when the stock was climbing from $10 in, in June uh, – or sorry, in March. Uh, that was the low, about 11 and change. And it, it, now it's at 50. Uh, and that's really been the narrative. But uh, it's a competitive space. Uh, and – they're still suspected to lose money, and guess what? For the most part, right? NBA is back, NFL's back, sporting is relatively back. Yeah, there's some restrictions, but the events are going on. The things that are that are happening to allow people to bet and uh, use DraftKings are still happening, still going on. So. While revenue is up 98% year over year and they might be losing a little bit less money, I still think it's a very competitive space and uh, just the valuation right now is 
is way too high. $39 billion. Think about that. $39 billion. This is a company that did $132 million in revenue last quarter. $132 million. That was in the quarter when you know NBA finals and playoffs were still going on. The NFL was going on. Baseball was still going on. Right? The, those, those sporting events were happening during that quarter. And they did all that revenue in while they're losing money. And technically, it's not making a higher high. Right? It actually peaked out in October, made a lower high, and now looks like a lower potential low as well. So I'm going to pass on DraftKings on my watch list, but it needs to be way cheaper. Way cheaper. Get the froth out of that market. Now let's keep things moving with another caller question that came in earlier at 888 chart Hey, Stephen Justin. This is Kashan. I was actually very curious about the company-sponsored 401k plan, specifically the Roth conversion. I have some money in pre-tax. And I want to actually roll that over, convert it into the Roth part of the 401k plan. I'm very confused about how to do so with the least tax impact, if that makes sense. So I know there might be a better time to do it, whether in the beginning, middle, or end of the year. I'm very confused on how to do so and appreciate any and all advice and appreciate the work you guys do. Thank you and take care. Well, this is a question for your CPA or tax professional because everyone's situation is a little bit different, right? What state they live in, what their tax bracket is, what their earnings will be this year versus last year and possibly the next year, et cetera, uh, and how much you have in that traditional 401k and potentially doing, remember, you don't have to do all of the conversion. You could do a partial Roth conversion from a traditional 401k into a Roth 401k or do all of it, same with a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. So that's something you really need to work out with a, and have a plan with your tax professional to limit your, your tax hit. Uh, it's not something I could even come close to giving you uh, specifics on air because I don't know your situation. Also, I'm not a CPA. So uh, it's a great idea that you're looking at everybody. You should be thinking about this every year. This is this is some, a strategy that I think everybody should be at least thinking about whether they should do some sort of Roth conversion this year because the more money you can get into that Roth, the more it can grow tax-free and you don't have to worry about distributions when you hit 70 uh, plus years old, etc. It should be part of everyone's strategy. But you need a good CPA, a good tax professional to help you decipher and create a solid plan. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family members about our informational podcasts that are free over at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also listen live, 4 to 5 Pacific Time, on investtalk.com. And we invite you to call with your questions anytime on our Invest Talk Voice Bank number, 888 chart Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered and offered to buy or sell securities. 
Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein chief executive officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. And they thank you for listening and welcome your comments or questions on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART. 888-99-CHART. 